Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Interpol. I'm Carlos from Interpol. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> If you haven't heard, the Melbourne International Comedy is in full swing and it's great to see so many diverse shows happening at venues all across the city. One of those set to kick off tomorrow night at Afro Hub in Carlton is called Ethiopian and Still Not Hungry and it's being performed by Joe White who's um, uh, Perth based but he's been good enough to come over here and drop into Triple R ahead of his show kicking off tomorrow night. He's won numerous comedy awards in Perth including a nomination for the most recent Perth Fringe Festival. Joe, thanks so much for coming to Triple Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank Glad you. you brought your jacket. Yeah, yeah, I've got a jacket, a skivvy, a jumper, and a singlet. So <laughs> <laughs> you're well equipped. Yeah, yeah, I forgot my beanie, but um, <laughs> I'm not outside for that long, so it's all good for now. And I'm always really intrigued by how people find their way into comedy because, as an audience member, it seems like the most anxiety-inducing, horrible thing to subject yourself to. How did you? get started i think it's uh you know we all have a bit of comedian in us you know so i was always cheeky amongst you know my brothers and sisters and would sit there on the couch teasing each other and no one would usually uh, tease me because once they get me started there's no stopping right so i think i was always um i had a bit of a you know that comedian in me but i was shy growing up so i've got like fear of rejection right so to get on stage and try to win the affection of strangers itself. It's one of the biggest uh, out there you can put yourself, right? So um, I uh, I went through a stage of my life where um, I was with this girl and then she dumped me. So I had to find the stage and pretty much just talk about my, uh, my challenges and what I thought was just funny. And uh, it was very well received. And so really what got me into comedy was that breakup. So I was... Yeah, pretty glad it happened and I got out there and, uh, yeah, and, and here we are, like nearly two years later on. So. Wow, it's a silver lining to everything. Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> and the show is, you know, just looking back at all of the challenges that I've faced and all the ups and downs and what I, in the process, like when something serious is happening in front of me, I always just look at the humorous side of it, but it's all happening in my head until I say it and then it's just, it's very well received. And mm. because of that, I figured, why not just do comedy and then... Yeah. And and you are you're going to kick off and become a full time comedian this year and uh, but really you've been working a day job in finance yeah yeah so I've been doing um, uh, banking and uh, banking full time comedy part time and then uh, I uh, you know comedy is doing quite well at the moment so <laughs> I figured you know if you can uh, do what you love to do and get paid to do it uh, why not no, do it full time so as of June. I'll be, yeah, full-time comic and, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit nervous, a little mm. bit scared, but at the same time, I'm pretty excited. And you came to Australia, I understand, at the age of 11 with your family from, from Sudan. And I think it's interesting you saying that you draw on kind of difficult things in your life for, for co- comedy and for comedic effect. Do you kind of immediately know when, when something happens or when you're thinking about something that there is a, a funny take on it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Look, there's a lot of things. Um, I mean, it's up to us how we obviously translate what's happening. Uh, you know, you can choose the, the positive side or the bad side. So even when bad things happen to me, I just, for some reason, I'm able to pick up the funny side of it, you know. Um, and uh, you know, if I was to share a story with you, and this is not in my show, but I'm working on possibly putting it in there. But um, I used to work um, as a door-to-door salesman, so I did that for four years and uh, is representing a phone company. So I was knocking at this one door and I figured this could be it, you know, this could be where the sale is because I've knocked at like bloody hundred doors, right? So like this could be it, I'm not going to leave this door uh, without making sure if there's no one home then that's, that's what's going to happen, I'm going to make sure. So I knocked, I knocked, no one would answer. I was looking through the window just to see, to see if no one's home and there was two people uh, in the lounge, um, very, very uh, naked and... Um, and they saw me and I was like, oh, my God, they're naked. So I quickly stepped back and then the man <laughs> came running outside and uh, he was pretty angry and I was explaining to him that I was in a peeping Tom. I was actually coming around on behalf of a phone company and I said, Telstra, and he got more angry. Um, and then, yeah, we were just able to sort it out and I left. So, you know, moments like that happen and uh, I just find the funny side you know, and, yeah. and go with it. He, he didn't, didn't sign him up though. 
Um, uh, no, I didn't. Oh, wow. <laughs> I gave him brochures and said, "Call me if you need me to come back." <laughs> and and close your curtains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that too, right? <laughs> it's bloody twelve p.m. All right. Yeah, right. <laughs> People are at work around that time. And um, I mean, when when you're drawing on things that happen in your life, if um, I mean, I'm not, I've heard that you draw on kind of stories from your, your family and your mum and so on. Do you do you word people up that you're going to include them in in your show before you do? Yeah, well, with uh, with my mum, um, she's very, very Ethiopian, like very, very cultural, right? And because uh, she came here at an age where it's very hard to, to I guess, integrate. She struggles where we grew up here, so it's very easy for us. So we're very westernised, she's very culturalised, and we all live in this house, and it's just so funny the way she reacts to things. And me looking at it from, you know, westernised perspective, I'm just like, mum, that's not how it's done or said. And, you know, we go back and forward, and to me, that's really humorous. And when I tell my friends who are Australian, they, they laugh. So I figured, I need to share this. And <laughs> I, I didn't tell my mum most of my show was about her. So when she came to my first show, and she was sitting in the front, and I was telling the stories, and I'd look at her, and she'd be laughing and crying. <laughs> and she would just go, ah, that is so true. Yes, very true. <laughs> I'm like, stop it, mum, you're heckling me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask her about, about the title of your show, Ethiopian and, and Still Not Hungry. How did you, you come up with that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, my, when I first did my, uh, this is my second show, Ethiopian and Still Not Hungry. My first show was um, Ethiopian and Not Hungry. Uh, and that was a massive success. So we just fed off that and went Still Not Hungry. Um, when I started off as a comic, obviously brand new in the scene, no idea you know, what a comedian does or... Um, how to structure a joke, you know. So I thought maybe there's a lot more to it than just getting up there and telling a story. Um, and in, in in a way there is, but when I was first figuring it out, I used to just get up on stage and just be like, ladies and gents, thank you so much for having me. My name is Joe White. I'm originally from Ethiopia. And with a straight face, I used to just say, and I'm not hungry. <laughs> and everyone would just look at me and start laughing. And so when I was thinking of a title... I thought, why not Ethiopian and not hungry? Mm. That gets like, I want a funny title. I want you to look at the title and be like giggling and go, I need to check this show out. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, it works because I think it really does also make um, an audience member, you know, like me, think, well, how much do I know about Ethiopia? You know, does it all go back to Band-Aid in 1980s, you know? Mm. Like, is that, do you think you're sort of tapping into that, I suppose, people's curiosity, but also you know, self-conscious ignorance about, um, you know, important regions of the world. Yeah, a lot of people um, say that to me, like, you know, there's a lot to tap into in terms of, um, you know, how back in the days um, and and a little bit now where there's a lot of poverty within um, Ethiopia in general. Um, so there's, you know, uh, back when the, um, was it you 2 that had the the fundraiser for no, was it, it was a Bob Geldof wasn't okay, it and yeah, a whole Bob lot Geldof, no, it wasn't just it. him it was like a whole, too, yeah sure, yeah it was a lot of people there on yeah. stage and it was just this hit single you know um I remember getting it on vinyl like a vinyl single so yeah. it was in I don't know exactly what 1980s date it was but I was little <laughs> and we had a record player and that's how you bought it so yeah, yeah it's a while ago me. now yeah yeah Someone was telling me to like just tune into that those moments and see if there's any comedy you can write about that and um, and and I guess there's a lot to talk about um, just being because there's not many Ethiopian comics like um, especially operating in this level um, I don't know if they uh, I haven't heard of one in Australia with their own show and stuff but I've met some in the open mic scene um, so that's that's the difference we can draw from that. Um, background, uh, so it's there's all. I'm sure there's a lot of material there. I haven't. I've, I try to stay as um, as current as possible, mm. you know, so the audience can relate. Yeah, that's it's it's really interesting. I think because there's there's a successful kind of crop of comedians at the moment, such as people like Nazim Hussain, for example, who have really made a name for themselves doing really contemporary comedy that kind of reflects back mainstream or, or white Australia's ignorance in a way. And I think it's a fascinating thing to do when you're entering, uh, I guess, a, an, an industry where you're relying on audiences. And some comedians are very safe and very much appeal to kind of a, a, a mainstream demographic and others challenge that like Nazim has done and like, and like you do, but mm. find success in that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely what um, uh, people are thinking in their head, you know. So what happens is, like, I mean, 
growing up 20 years in Australia, like over 20 years, um, and I've experienced, I don't think, like I, in my show I talk about how Australians, uh, as Australians, we're not racist, you know, we're casually racist. So I talk about that. And people look confused because I go, I'm, I'm all for casual racism and everyone's just looking at me like, what are you talking about? You know, and I'm like, show some hands. Like, who here is for casual racism? And everyone's just except me on stage with my hands up. And I explain what I mean, you know. And I and I do that through uh, my jokes. You know, mm. and you know, I say casual racism is pretty much taking the piss out of yourself. You know, in Australia, that's what we're good at. We're good at just making fun of ourselves, having a laugh. And I say that if you can't do that, you're going to struggle to live in Australia, right? <laughs> so I, I talk a lot about how. In most places that I've been to or worked at, I'm always like the only black person in the department. And to me, that's, uh, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's just like the situations I find myself in, they're really, really funny. And being a comedian in the financial industry, that itself, you know, when there's something serious meeting taking place and everyone's got this persona that they have to uphold this, I am the director, I am the boss. (laughs) And I'm sitting there going, I am the comic, <laughs> but in my head, obviously, <laughs> so it's, uh, there's a lot to talk about. Um. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Joe White all about his show, uh, appearing as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Ethiopian and Still Not Hungry. It kicks off tomorrow night. And uh, beyond this season in Melbourne, you're also heading to Canada very soon. Yeah, so uh, I've got um, obviously the 10 shows in Melbourne and then I've got three shows in Sydney um, at Starbar and then back to Perth to head to Canada. So we're planning a show at a venue called Comedy Bar in uh, Toronto. Uh, prior to that, I'm going to Montreal for a four-day uh, comedy conference. So it's, uh, it's you know, all the best in, in comedy uh, in that hemisphere would be there in this four-day conference i think last year they had dave Chappelle, kevin hart louis wow. ck um aziz anzari and you know, a few other um, comics as well so it's a great conference to sort of understand you know comedy at that level so to go from perth you know comedy to melbourne comedy and then to canada comedy it's a whole different ball game and do you need to change your show to move cities and then countries do you think um well when i go to canada i'm still going to take the title ethiopian and still not hungry i'm in love with that title you know because every time i'm you know i do uh open mic night gig just to promote the show and i go i've got a show called ethiopian and still not hungry sometimes that is like one of the biggest laugh points i just go it's just the name of the show like you know (laughs) there's something there right so i'm going to take that abroad with me but I will be writing, obviously, current stuff about what's happening in Canada and mm. Australia and Sudan, and so compare all the cultures. It must be a really exciting time, sort of being about to take the leap of faith into to comedy full time, but also having only done it for a couple of years. Do you sometimes look back at the the course your life's taken and think, "Wow, this is this is great. This is really fun." Yeah. Look, I mean. To me, success is, uh, you know, waking up every day and doing what you love to do and getting paid to do it, right? So if I can do comedy full time and get paid to do it, it's scary. Don't get me wrong, but it's amazing at the same time. So. Mm. Well, if you want to head um, out to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and see Joe White's show, Ethiopian and Still Not Hungry, you can. It kicks off tomorrow night and head, uh, runs right through until the 23rd of April. And we wish you all the best success in Melbourne and beyond. And uh, I don't think this is the last time we're going to see you at Triple R in Melbourne. And it's really great to meet you. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much, guys. Heavily appreciated. And uh, yeah, can't wait to see you guys again. Sort of thinking about people that are out in nature today. Mm. Pretty hair raising. Uh, but our Biodiversity will hopefully get a boost under a new state government plan to protect more of our natural heritage areas. The plan was released last week and was welcomed by the Victorian National Parks Association. And Phil Ingemels from VMPA is going to talk more about this strategy. It's a 20-year one and it's really great to have you in at Triple R. Phil, welcome. Thank you. And so, I mean, let's talk about what the plan's going to do. We've got a new 20-year plan off the back of the last 20-year plan. Better, worse, same? Uh, it's definitely better. It, it does a few things. First of all, it recognises how complex the whole thing is out there. We have something like 100,000 native species. Um, it's not just koalas and kangaroos and a few gum trees. Um, most of those are the really small things, the insects and the fungi and so on. Um, but they're the things that actually hang this system together. 
and it's a it's a huge inheritance. It's a, it's a it has enormous value in all sorts of ways, apart from just being being generally nice and interesting. Um, it um, you know it, it gives us clean air, clean water. It is remarkable, in fact, that you know you have this great complexity of stuff sort of hanging out in the bush there, and what comes out of it, clean water. I mean that's bizarre, <laughs> really. <laughs> and, but it also, you know, it, it brings us um, all sorts of um, uses for um, future medicines, um, future industrial stuff. Uh, there's the whole genetic resource there. We don't know the potential of what's there for the future. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a massive area, and, and I wonder if the the challenges that uh, Victoria confronts in terms of biodiversity are very different to what the picture was like near on 20 years ago when the last plan was put out there. Yeah, we know a lot more. Um, we know a lot more about the value of what's there, um, even in money terms. Like it's to actually, I think the plan actually says that if we increase the um, integrity of the system, if we look after it better, it's billions to the economy. Um, if we don't look after it, it's billions. We, we'll lose more billions. Um, so it's really important um, for, uh, purely for economic terms. It's also important in health terms. Um, uh, just that if people, uh, they know now that if people get the chance to experience nature and spend time there, it might be once in their life they go there, but it might be the time that saves them. Um, just for physical and, and mental depression, things like that. Mm. And although that's just a, a good thing in itself, it also translates economically. Okay. And it's really interesting to have all of these concepts come in to, under the, the banner of, of natural heritage and, and biodiversity, Phil. And I wonder uh, if you could talk about what these natural heritage areas are. I imagine some of them are on private land as well as our, our national parks. Absolutely. Xena um, National Parks is in our, um, just our state forest areas, um, uh, but it's also in private land. It's in just bits of coastal uh, land. It's in the ocean. It's in our rivers and streams. It's in our wetlands. Um, they all are areas which are, in some cases, really hanging on by the, by, you know, by, by a hair's breadth. I mean, they've suffered an enormous. Um, impacts over the last couple of hundred years. And we, I mean, we heard, um, you know, in the last couple of weeks that uh, our other, you know, if we step outside of Victoria just briefly, uh, that the Great Barrier Reef, you know, two thirds of it now is absolutely um, damaged and bleached and we've had year on year bleaching now, that sort of thing. Are we facing similar type threats here in Victoria? We are. And I just want to, I mean, who would have thought of that 20 years ago? Oh, it's just it's, heartbreaking. It's just, I think I'm, I'm heading up there soon, and mm. in, in a couple of months, up to north, far north Queensland, and we'll be snorkeling over bleached reefs. You know, and this is something that uh, is not what you want to share with your kids. But you know, humans aside, it's just a catastrophe. In, uh, cl climate change is a big thing, and uh, we know one of the things that it brings is increased fire. And we know now that in the ash forests, these are the tall mountain ash forests and alpine ash forests of, of the uh, not far from Melbourne, I figure, because these are the great, the, they're currently the second largest trees in the world. Um, we think they once were the largest. We had the, we've chopped down the biggest trees in the world a few times, unfortunately. But the, um, they can't survive, like most eucalypts can survive fire very well. The big, tall, huge mountain ash don't. They're killed by fire. And if they, if a fire comes again within 15 years, then ones that have come up haven't had it time to reseed. So we've now lost large areas of alpine ash and some areas of mountain ash in Victoria. And um, the, uh, that's a, um, we can lose that forest if we have more fires here. And I know your focus is, is on Victoria, being from the Victorian National Parks Association, but looking at the, the biodiversity strategy put out by the Victorian government, how does it stack up compared to other state governments around the country? Uh, it's a very good one, and I think it's one that, that other states should model themselves on. Uh, the, there is a national biodiversity strategy that came out a few years ago, and that's also very good, and that does that. And importantly, I think it's important to see that as part of a whole international thing. It's actually the need for these strategies is actually required by a thing called the International Convention on Biodiversity. So nations all around the world have actually signed up to the need for these things to happen. Yeah. And so we have these strategies and as we keep saying we're off the back of a 20 year one but we've still got these threats so what can we rely on strategies to do for us? I understand this one has 10 priority areas. Is it likely to, to get 
government agencies and companies and 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 communities to rally behind certain important areas it's sort of the hard one if you like but the strategy makes it very clear that it's the responsibility of government to to increase the funding and resources there and the skills and the knowledge um but it's also a something that has to be right across the community and right across business as that as the, and there will be it, it puts um the there have to be obligations for people. It's as part of economic accounting, as part of accounting in the state, to look at to look, to look at anybody's performance. It has, it has to have an environmental accountability. And that's exciting. But we still now see biodiversity preservation pitched against jobs, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's a false pitch, really. Um, but but the, I mean, the, the traditional one has been tourism, but it's just the general well-being and the services that that that. that, that a healthy ecosystem to provide right across the board that we have to protect, yeah. And that, that battleground's an interesting one, I think, in, in light of uh, Barnaby Joyce's recent comments about the lead beaters possum and suggesting that it should be taken off the critically endangered list to kind of open up more areas for logging in Victoria. And we know there's there's a challenge there with, with jobs being lost, uh, I think, in Gippsland. Do you, is there much... I guess, difference or um, contestation between the state and federal governments around these issues, given that, that you think they, they both have fairly strong and robust biodiversity strategies? Yeah, well, I think that's a slightly sort of gratuitous comment from Barnaby Jules, but the... Um, uh, the he is out of character. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think the, the logging thing is a difficult one, but it's been, it's been difficult for a long time. And way back in the 70s, it goes back a long time, people knew that the resource wasn't there to continue to just cut and cut again like a magic pudding that's, that's going to sort of keep going forever. Um, the, what, what's been really missing for a very long time is a strategy to move on to private forestry on private land and to make that work and to have a plan for that and also to value-add what you do so you're not just cutting it down and selling it but you're actually you've got an industry making things with that product. And that strategy has been a really good, workable, long-term strategy that is way overdue. Yeah. We're speaking with um, Phil Ingemels from the Victorian National Parks Association about the new 20-year strategy that the state government in Victoria has just released and it's looking at the protection of our natural heritage and also of biodiversity. And can we um, go to climate change because this is something that is changing, um, you know, the whole world, but you know, Victoria in particular. What What is it in the strategy that is contending with climate change? Uh, it makes, the climate change is, um, is up front in the strategy. It's... it's, it's Basically, the whole thing is subject to the climate change and, and looking at those impacts. And that's increased fire, it's increased flood, it's increased drought. So, I mean, it's, it's more severe weather, basically, in, in one way or the other, that sort of thing. It's also the ocean with ocean surges and, and the, the effects on the coastline. And then the changing temperatures and acidity in the ocean, all of those things are actually in the strategy. But the one that I find most interesting is this idea that basically... Not long ago in New South Wales, there was a, a whole area of Manigam on the Monero tableland that crashed. It just threw uh, levels of, of drought and frequent doubt that it hadn't happened there before in anyone's knowledge. And, the, um, and it appears to be a climate thing. And the, the potential for unknown effects to happen when a species, either because of a new pest or something else, can actually crash. And the idea is to introduce or to set up a series of programs where you can know what to introduce as, as ge- genetic variants of species that are under threat. So that managums are here, for instance, might crash or some other species might crash. But that you've got a trial plot where you've introduced a variant from that from a more, more drought-prone area, say, and you actually know what to do when that happens. And that's flagged in the, um, the idea of, 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 of getting... Um, genetic variants into into ecosystems, which is what happens in the long term if you have slower rates of climate change and connected landscapes. But we haven't got that anymore. Yeah, we've got a disrupted that ecosystems yeah. aren't connected together, yeah. so it's not happening naturally, yeah. and the speed is yeah. such that it's not able to to yeah. take hold without intervention. I wonder about development in our sort of natural heritage areas. This again is something you know sort of rears its head every couple of years down at the prom in particular. But what what about development? Uh, developments are always a problem. Basically, if you put a building of some sort into a park, then you need a bigger car park, then you need a coffee shop, and then you need a bigger thing, and then it just goes... The developments grow, and they're a really big threat. Creeping development is one of the biggest problems to our great natural areas. And um, uh, a classic example is the chalet. Um, before 1900, it was a little wooden shed, and... <laughs> 
and then the chalet built, and then the chalet got, became two stories. And, and this had, is Mount Buffalo. This is Mount Buffalo. Sorry, we're talking about Mount, the Mount, Mount Buffalo chalet. And then it ended up with six hectares of tennis courts and everything else, and that's all become very old and sort of falling apart. But the main ch- chalet building is loved by a lot of Victorians, understandably. Um, I think you could scale back that development um, and have a really good place. It's ideal for young people, for people that don't normally get out in the bush, that haven't had that experience, outer suburbs, Aboriginal communities, things like that. And it is a balance, isn't it? Because on one hand, we do want more people to experience. And on the other hand, we need to control development. And I wonder, is that well uh, thought through in this this strategy that's come out from the state government? It's not dealt with at length, but it does talk about the need for that experience. And if you keep adding developments into parks, you actually change that experience. You don't get the chance to challenge yourself. You don't get to have the bush without other noises, all those sorts of things. And once you've lost that experience, it's gone. And so 2036 is what this next strategy takes us to. Uh, What should we expect, you think, in the next 20 years? Like, will we be in better shape? Uh, Basically, uh, it's a, a strategy from the government. But basically, it's the community that will make this work and it will happen if people want it to happen. And if that happens, I think if people really show that and do their own bit and encourage their their, their business or their government to, to be part of that, um, it can work and it's a, it's a priceless victory if we get that. And so, so what happens now that we've, we've got the strategy? Do, do those measures start to be implemented fairly quickly, fairly immediately, or is it a bit of a process between turning that into a bit of a, an action plan? Um, I would hope we'd see something in the next budget um, that will really point quite strongly towards that, to, to really give it a, a kick along. But it will definitely be a series of increases, and I think the strategy actually says that, that there has to be a an ongoing series of advances. Because it's not just money, it's, uh, we've got to get the knowledge into this. Mm. I mean, it's bizarre, really. I mean, the, about 70% of our species out there are fungi. It's kind of weird, but they're, they're sort of... So, so, you know, the, the, well, they, but they actually sort of run the system. There is nobody... If you, want a, if you want a person who does fungi, they're called a mycologist. If you want to study mycology, there is nowhere in Victoria you can do it. We've really got to get the knowledge up there so, so people can actually understand these systems better. Well, um, for those of us that read the budget, and I always do, I'll be looking for a line item there or a few of them looking at biodiversity. And it's uh, really great to have you in, Phil, and let's um, catch up again soon. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Although there's tens of thousands of step-parents in Australia, there's been surprisingly very little written about the experience of becoming an instant parent until now. Melbourne local Cal Chandler has written uh, an honest and loving and very funny memoir of her experience as a spare mother to her husband Pete's two boys from a previous marriage and the change it brought into the relationship with her own stepmother as well, called simply The Other Mother. She's popped by Triple R and it's really good to see you, Cal, and because I've known you for a very long time and know that you're a wonderful writer but still I was surprised at how much I laughed through this book and just loved it so congratulations thanks but uh, I think uh, you know you're right a lot that stepmothers have got a bad rap in children's literature and we all know that but um, when you went to google step parenting in contemporary times you also didn't find very much that was very positive or very helpful no I think I mean maybe I'm a bad researcher but I couldn't find a whole lot that um that spoke to what I needed I wanted to hear from um like I just wanted to hear stories from people who'd been in it that weren't um panicky although maybe that's come through in the book a bit um that weren't sort of you know complaining about the the, the partner's ex-wife or, um, you know, anonymous. And I just couldn't find... They were all anonymous. Um, I just couldn't find people to... They weren't all anonymous, but some of them were. Um, yeah, so I just um, started to write it in my head while the kids were really little, um, uh, just so I could get a sense of... Um, like, so I could try to figure out how much we was exactly in that bathwater because it's just pretty horrific, you know, to... Because you didn't have much experience with kids at all, did you? And I sort of... I loved the honesty when you hadn't even hooked up with people and you were already meeting up with your own stepmother to go, what's it like to have an instant family? And and that sort of changed your relationship with your stepmother as well. Yeah, I think um, it started to dawn on me that she might have something to offer in this respect, like a, kind of about 20 years too late maybe to actually get her alone and talk to her about what had happened for her because I was sort of 15 or so when she came on the scene and 
Um, you know, I assumed the role of a live electric fence, like I kind of made it very difficult for her to get near me. Um, but yeah, we we sort of, so that was hard for, you know, a long time until I finally realised that I had some agency in it as well and I needed to um, get to know her and, you know, then I realised that I'd missed out on this amazing um, friendship, you know, with for this, you know, this, I've missed out on this other mother because I'd kind of shut her down. Um, yeah. So, so was it that process of, of thinking about and entering into the relationship and becoming the stepmother, did that really make you reflect on, on, I guess, your upbringing and how you related to your stepmother in a way that you never really had before? Yeah, I think I'm that egotistical that I hadn't really <laughs> like considered what other people would feel until I was actually in the situation myself. Like I realised after a little while that I'd never bought my stepmom a Mother's Day card. You know, I'd never acknowledged her contribution to my upbringing. Um, so yeah, that, and I noticed that um, in the lead up to my first Mother's Day with the kids, realising that I didn't didn't have a place with them. I wasn't, you know, they weren't at school making macaroni art for me. They were making it for their mum because rightly that's where, you know, that ended energy went um and that got me thinking about um you know we don't there's no real room for stepmothers even in schools like you only get time to make one dodgy card or you know you only get enough money to buy one my stepmom is the greatest cup you know um from the school market so i think that yeah structurally it's kind of hard for stepmothers to kind of be acknowledged for their contribution and it's interesting isn't it because like schools really have come a long way uh with regards to um I suppose making like blended families are very normal. I don't know, do we call them blended families? But you know, they're very normal now. And also it's very normal for, for families not to be married and for people to have different surnames. And they've got all, they can deal with this now. They never used to be able to, but there's certain things that really haven't changed, which like you say, is making time for those kids that have five steps of grandparents and not two uh and you know more than more than one mother yeah enough tickets to go to the school concert you know like so you get two tickets and then you know the 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 underlings like grandparents and step parents have to wait until those ticket allocations have been freed up so they can get more tickets so they can go and sit for 14 hours and watch like a million children (laughs) kind of you know (laughs) sing bad covers i actually laughed when when um, you go to you do go to the school concert and uh your um step your older stepson is uh the first act and then you've got to sit through everybody else's kids anyway that, yeah. that felt familiar to the me. The growing horror. <laughs> that is not going to end in five minutes. <laughs> and, and I guess knowing that there wasn't a lot out there that had charted parents' experience or step parents' experience when they sort of get into a relationship with somebody and become kind of a proxy parent for their, for their children, even knowing that you were making, I guess, a valid contribution, was it hard to write this book? Because there's people who are very close to you who you're you're writing about and I imagine it'd be really tough to to tread that line between being honest and open and and interesting without potentially including things in there that they would prefer weren't. Yeah absolutely and you're writing about kids as well Mm. so you need to be very gentle with that and be mindful of the fact that they will one day read it. We've asked them in consultation with their mum, the boy's mum, we sort of have asked the kids to not read it until they're 25 so I don't know whether that's actually going to happen. I don't definitely wouldn't have happened if someone told me to not read a book until I was 25. (laughs) I get that impression. (laughs) (laughs) You can do you do the best you can but yeah it was really challenging but I kind of applied the Helen Garner um, school of thought to it where you um, apply the blowtorch to yourself much harder than you do to anybody else um, and also um, I just learned a lot about um, you know about these normal healthy happy little boys while I was writing because I was unpicking that first couple of years that were really hard um, and I got to realize just how normal um, the, the two-year-old's behavior was he was missing his mum I was this random person in his house mopping up tea outside his front outside his bedroom door you know like who is this person suddenly she you know wants to be loved and yeah, and so it was hard to kind of yeah, insert myself into that and be, play a delicate trick. But the other tricky thing was actually writing at the kitchen bench in my Ugg boots um, after the kids had gone to bed. So mm-hmm. I was writing about this really tricky time and trying to be silly about it and light but also hold on to, you know, just how challenging it was and not erase or pretend that that stuff hadn't happened. But the boys were different boys. They were older. We had stronger relationships. They, um, you know, I love them deeply. Um, so to be writing about them in a hard time and then to have them come in for a cup of tea, uh, for a glass of water and ask for, um, you know, lemony water, you know, at eight o'clock at night. So I've got to snap into a different, a different way of thinking. So that was quite challenging. Um, but yeah, it sort of made me love them more, I think, as I, 
because um, I went back through diaries and got down little speech patterns and stuff and that helped me to really kind of see how far they'd come, mm. particularly the two-year-old because he was so little, you know, it's such a... And now that I've got my own kid, like my partner and I had a baby together, so the boys have got a little brother, I realised just how, um, like, I don't want to say sociopathic, but I'm going to say it because I can't think of another word, but how um, how sort of brutal kids are. You know, they're like, no, you don't sit there and I don't love you and mm. stop saying that and don't say words and all that stuff. And I'm looking it, for the button to push. Yeah. You're trying to push the up. And it, it was pretty easy to push yours by the sounds of it. I, just, I was just a giant button, like with, you know, <laughs> warning signs that said. <laughs> but you did have to, um, I mean, you did find your way and, and you've got, you know, this family of five now. Um, but in those early days, uh, it dawned on you pretty early that you need to, to have a different relationship with the kids. You couldn't have the same relationship with both Harry and Charlie. They, they needed to be separate. So did, did that help when you started to break it down a little bit and go, okay, I've got a, I think I've got a strategy here? Yeah, I think for a long time there, I, I just thought, saw them as kids. Like you have to, and I must, you know, like as general things. And then I started to see their actual personalities and how dramatically different they were and realised that I got different stuff from both of them. So the older one is more quite is quieter and more reflective and extremely diplomatic and likes to play like he's massively sporty and you know loves his dad and is attached to him in all these great ways but he also liked to play little games where we would wrap up um grapes and hide them around the house for each other um and so it was easy to get to know him because he liked to do these kind of little quiet stuff but the um the younger one um yeah, he's bigger and more, you know, extroverted and, you know, he's the first person to knock on a door on at Halloween and while well, the rest of us are kind of like lurking in the background, which actually served a really great purpose because he got to get chocolate for everybody, you know. So I started to love him for that stuff for those reasons because he was so exuberant and it helped to bring that out in me a bit as well, I think. Yeah, and of course there's the um, relationship with Pete's ex and, and her new partner. So these kids didn't just have you, but they also had another father figure and and that, you know, the challenge for your partner that that brought in. And so this, I mean, again, it's very sort of normal in, in sort of air quotes to have these relationships, but they all need to be sort of dealt with in a really delicate and sensitive way, don't they? Yeah. Yep. I, yeah, I approached them when I started writing it to get their blessing and to see, or particularly the boy's mum. Um, yeah, I got lots of feedback from her about what, you know, ways that we could kind of help to support the kids. Um, but yeah, it was, I was writing about stuff like, um, things that they know about me and my family, you know, so like wondering whether they know that I've got, you know, varicose veins or all these, like, do the, do the kids tell them that or do they boast about the fact that I've got really messy hair or, but then on the other side, I was like, I know stuff about their family that I don't, I don't need to know. I need to unknow how many squares of worming chocolate they take, you know, <laughs> but yeah. So I think there's this sort of forced, very strange form of intimacy with people that until I got together with my fella, I just had no idea who he, who, you know, didn't know them. They weren't part of my friendship group and it's hard to make new friends when you're an adult maybe but yeah so suddenly we just had this sort of extraordinary intimacy with these people yeah and but a very different relationship to what you experienced as a kid because your parents um didn't communicate in the way that pete and his ex do and also uh, his ex-wife's parents had you over for dinner every fortnight so you had uh, these relationships that were actually quite constant for you as well they weren't just kind of once a year at christmas they're kind of yeah. Every day negotiations and. Yeah. So it's that realization that, uh, I'm not just starting a relationship with this man. He's also got his kids. So that's fine. I can research that. I can talk to my stepmom about it. But then suddenly I realized that I've also got, um, his, his ex's parents and I'm going to be going for dinner at their place every fortnight. And, you know, it's, it's a big, you, you collect, you're collecting an entourage basically. And yeah, so it was interesting. And that's so different to how it happened for our parents because they, back in the seventies and eighties, there, there was not such a great template for divorce. So things did end in, you know, fireworks and stuff a lot more commonly. And I think that both Pete and I were aware of that and, um, wanted to do things really differently. Um, so yeah. 
And you were also older when your step-parent, step-mother came into the picture than, than Pete's kids were. Did you notice a real difference in, I guess, um, his kids' ability to adapt to that compared to your experience? Because the teen years are difficult for a whole, whole range of reasons. And I imagine a lot of um, children going through or teenagers going through that experience would react in a similar way to, to how, how you did. Yeah, and talking to friends now who are step who found themselves as step-moms as well, I think they find um, that teens are really chal- can be really challenging as well um yeah so I think I was in some and people kept saying oh you're lucky you've got them when they're young and so in some ways that's great but you know two is a pretty fragile age mm. to be getting a kid um yeah so there, I think every age has got its own complexities when you're absorbing them and I think at a certain point um I realized that I well I'd got them while they were young they too would be big one day and probably quite soon you know with feet like damp nuclear warheads and you know they were going to be teenagers soon and what would happen to me in that you know so yeah <laughs> you'll find out soon yeah. uh, Cal Chandler's with us her book The Other Mother has recently been released and it looks at the role of what's well, a memoir of her experience as a stepmother or a spare mother as you and I mean did the do the words matter Cal like spare mother feels kind of more fun and maybe um you know less less severe but i mean why does stepmother sound more severe than it probably is because it's just regular women yeah. playing that role it's a really you know it seems like a um a really normal term but it's very loaded you know you think about the evil stepmother and you know cinderella's stepmother and the jealousy that she had and covering her in soot and um that we've got there's a very long history of evil stepmothers and the role that these outside women these other mothers have played in the roles of children and can they be trusted with the other women's ch- with with children um can they be trusted if they're not mothers themselves um and so yeah i think that you feel the way of that even even if you don't kind of you know think about it intellectually it's it's out there and it's very easy kids are reading those things all the time like my next door neighbor's kid was swinging on the fence and, and saying step you're a stepmother I was like yeah she's like but stepmothers are mean in books and I sort of just waited for it and she's like but you're not mean and I could just feel you. that yeah <laughs> I could feel that going like just feel it circling and I tried to talk to her about that a little bit you know but um kids sort of yeah they're just testing it out the whole time they're trying to understand you know the difference between what they're hearing in books and what's actually going on in their lives mm. we've got time for a reading do you want to do a reading I can do Kel? a little reading Why sure. don't you do a reading it's um <laughs> it's uh, 20 minutes to 12 here on Three Triple R and Kalia uh, and Dylan with you. It is the reading room, and um, Kel Chandler's here with her book, The Other Mother. So this piece um, is about the first sleepover at my um, at my partner Pete's place, and it's just a few months into our thing. So there are two kids: there's Harry, who's five, and Charlie, who's nearly three. Before dawn, I opened my eyes to find two mini humans beside the bed, their eyes boring into my soul. I clutched at sleep, but it slipped through my fingers. I didn't want to be separated from Pete's expensive mattress, its pillow top like a hug from a great auntie with an ample bosom. Unlike my former lover's bed beds, it wasn't a futon or propped up on milk crates or salvaged from hard rubbish. I dressed quickly so the boys wouldn't see me naked and prepared myself for a trip to St Kilda. I hadn't been to Luna Park since Doc Martens and Sweetheart Necklines hit the suburbs in the late 1980s. Pete strapped the kids into their car seat, Charlie's face was illuminated in a filtered beam of sunlight. His big brown eyes were almost translucent and he had lashes like a Scottish Highland calf. Stop looking at me, he said. Let's go. After leading us through the mirror maze in 12 seconds, Harry soaked up our praise for a moment before confessing that his mum and her new boyfriend had brought them to Luna Park just last week, had brought them to Luna Park just last weekend. I'd hoped to build up a Disneyland dad's girlfriend persona by suggesting fun novelty outings for the kids, but of course all parents knew about Luna Park. They knew about every activity from ice skating in Docklands to the Ikea ballroom. I was a rookie. Not yet three and slightly freaked out by the sounds of people roaring on the rides around us, Charlie wanted to stay close to Pete and only go on one ride, a gently undulating elephant holding a cloud of pink fairy floss with dark specks of condensation as the sugary structure collapsed. Harry was also reluctant to stray far from his dad, but seemed bored. How about we go on that one together? I asked Harry, pointing at the big dipper as it plummeted over a rickety incline. Harry looked to his dad for guidance and agreed, polite and shy. Maybe he didn't want to offend me by saying no. 
in the queue, I was alone with him for the first time, in charge of a five-year-old on a 19th century piece of engineering. Kids can sense fear, another parent would tell me later, and I was keen to feel the silence between us, but I was also concerned about whether I'd missed a sign about height restrictions. Harry avoided my eye, swinging on the barricade and trying to keep his dad in sight. Teenagers floated around us and ate hot chips with tomato sauce dripping down their fingers, and Harry seemed very little standing next to them. Surely if he was less than a metre tall, the attendant would stop us from getting on the ride. Finally, an empty caboose called our name, and I helped Harry with his belt, as much to reassure me as for him. Our legs touched as we jolted around corners before we brushed the St Kilda sky. Other passengers screamed and threw their arms in the air, but Harry and I were both quiet and pale. I think I'm going to die, he said, deadpan, before the descent sucked the air from our lungs. Centrifugal force made it hard for me to put my arm around him, but I did my best, mostly to make a non-verbal promise that we probably wouldn't die right that second, but also to ensure that he didn't sleep out from, slip out from under the restraints and fall to his doom on our first proper date. Now I was starting to understand why it had taken so long for me and my stepmum to go out unchaperoned. Aside from the fact that I wouldn't let her near me for years, there was a very real threat of actual death out there for children in the world. It was too much responsibility for someone with no prior experience. New parents had the luxury of adjusting gradually to this realisation about the terrors of parenting. As a newbie and a latecomer, I felt the pressure intensely. I may not be able to keep them safe. I wondered if this feeling would ever pass. Oh, sorry, I laugh all the way through that because it's just so beautiful. But this idea of responsibility for a, a sort of a, an adult coming into a kid's life because you end up with it as a as a stepmother or a spare mother, you have responsibility. And, I mean, you thought a lot about it before you took it on, but it still took you by surprise. Yeah, I think the first time I had to take um, the older one to school, I lay in bed for a little bit too long just counting the number of streets we would have to cross and working out whether I'd be able to get him across them safely. Like, it, um, yeah, it's, it was terrifying. And now those kids give me instructions when we're driving, you know, like, tell me you've Turn gone left. the right way. Yeah, there's a traffic jam. Go that way. Take the street. So, I, want, yeah. I wonder also in the process of writing this book and, and thinking about it a lot and talking to people, whether you, you've noticed a difference in the way that expectations around stepmothers compared to stepfathers is there still that assumed kind of caring role mothering role that's been uh, ascribed to, to females throughout history do you find that still plays into expectations around what a stepmother should be and what they should do yeah, I think about, um, if I go back to my own experience as a, as a kid, um, my stepmom came into my life and she was instantly my stepmom. And when my mum, um, got a boyfriend, she was, he was her boyfriend. Mm. I never even for a minute considered that he was my step, my stepdad. Um, mostly I think because he was a bit older and he had grown kids and he, um, he wasn't really, he'd done his job as a parent so um but it, i wonder about the gender roles there about why i instantly went to stepmother with one and not with the other mm. um yeah i mean i think my i don't have a great experience like i don't have a lot of experience of having talked to lots of stepdads now but i get the sense that um a lot of them get a pat on the back and told that they're you know very brave for taking on these big families um and then get left to their own devices so yeah but i'd be interested in the conversation about that and find out more mm. yeah and you, i mean you've said in the book Kel that it made a difference when you got married that that actually helped in your family unit I wonder why that I know yeah I think you know I'm a bit ashamed of that gender stereotype as well and that kind of you know that reliance on this traditional kind of um structure that I don't really agree with anyway (laughs) but um yeah it just something magically clicked for those kids they were little and they wanted to know where I sat in their relationship and they didn't didn't get girlfriend and they didn't know what that meant to them and um when they went so we eloped and we took them to the registry office to get married with us in a in a white limo because that's their favorite song by the free fighters which is extremely (laughs) daggy but we went there um and yeah just maybe it was the lemonade that we gave them in the limo that made them love me i don't know but (laughs) but um yeah from that moment everything seemed to shift into place and while i sort of was a bit ashamed of myself for taking what i could get i took what i could get (laughs) yeah i mean it makes sense doesn't it that if you know if that makes a difference then yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of conversations about, um, you know, what is a stepmother and do we really need to force ourselves into this role? And I think that it's it's a good it's a good time to maybe talk about that stuff. And is it uh, do we feel the weight that we need to, you know, 
box ourselves into these kind of roles. But, you know, it, if you're living with little kids and you've got a you have to have some kind of role with them and you're going to be making, you know, chopping broccoli at 5.30 in the, and making lunch boxes and um, packing lunch boxes and, you know, peeling tiny undies out of tracksuit pants and cleaning up fried rice and, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that you'll be doing and it is a, it is a maternal role and, you know, for, for stepdads, I guess it's exactly, it's a similar thing. They're going to be playing similar roles in those households. So, yeah, you, for step stepmum sounds like a sensible thing and you've got um as you say you and pete have another son elby um so called in the book you've changed all the kids names for you know i suppose to protect them their their privacy and but um so he's there and has that also changed things in your family yeah i think it was great for me to um it was great for me to have my own son because it's sort of something slotted into place for me as well so i understood what my role was because i've got pretty low self-esteem so to actually you know I didn't know what my place was with the boys and I was sort of backing up and not really understanding what what role I could play but suddenly I had this little one and I was like no you don't eat that from that place and I got to be a bit more grown up about it no you don't look down his throat with a torch when he's (laughs) newborn (laughs) (laughs) yep so find another way to explore your brother (laughs) but also forever you're you're um you know the mother of their brother yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that makes it a really beautiful thing. I mean, it's challenging for the boys. They come from their mum's house and they land on our doorstep like they did this morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, like, and they've come from this place where they're, you know, they can do what they want and suddenly they've got a three-year-old chasing them around and um, it takes a little while for them to adjust to having having the family life that we've got. So, and usually by the time we've all adjusted and settled in, then they've gone again. So, you know, it's a very up and down kind of roller coaster of a life. It's really interesting too, Kel, because they're getting a taste of what it was for you as well at first, where you had just Pete for a week or whatever it is, and then they would come barreling in and it's like full of joy and fun and love and chaos as well and everything has to revolve around them and now they're getting that (laughs) yeah I might actually draw that to their attention (laughs) next time Albie's playing the musical keyboard while one of them's trying to read (laughs) (laughs) well congrats on the book it can't have been easy writing this in bits and pieces in your Ugg boots at the kitchen table when the boys went to sleep but um, you've done a wonderful job and uh, and out through Affirm Press um, Kel Chandler's The other mother actually kelly chandler if you're looking it up online um and yeah highly recommended i enjoyed it very much and uh mother's day is around the corner i think there's a few other mothers that need to read this book as well and um yeah all the best with it kel thanks for having me it's been really fun for complete access to the triple r archives which include over 100 interviews live to air performances documentaries and other triple r specials become a subscriber via the link on our website Thanks for listening to Triple R.